Hello! Welcome to Clockworks, a Legion podcast. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And man, this show is cuckoo. Like, like cuckoo clock. No. Because like a cuckoo clock. No. Clockworks is our title. I'm just saying like our tagline should relate to the clock theme of our title. So chapter 12. (laughs) So we're talking today about chapter 12 of Legion. We're giving it the title, Burning Down the House. Burning Down the House. This episode was written by Noah Hawley and Nathaniel Halpern. They have written together every episode this season. I'm not going to go into the previous things they've written. Listen to our first two episodes to hear that. It's getting repetitive. This episode was directed by Alan Curris, who has directed a few things before, but for most of her career has been a cinematographer, and for our interest on Legion especially, she's best known as the cinematographer for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So she, I think, is doing an amazing job directing this episode, Mm -hmm. by the way. Absolutely. Do you want to take us through this episode? Has it all been female directors so far this season? So far, it has. Kudos. Kudos? Yeah. Kudos to Legion for doing that. And I haven't really heard it, like, specifically advertised for that. It's just, you know, subtly doing that. And I appreciate that. Noah Holly, good, good job. Yeah. And all three female directors, and this is the first time for all three of them directing a superhero property. Nice. Yeah. So, let's get into the beat by beat. Sid sits in an igloo by a fake fire. She crawls through a tunnel and is born into her mother's arms. As music plays, we see scenes from Sid growing up with her mother, not wanting to be touched. She watches a goldfish, reads, visits an art gallery. She tries on various coats of her mother's friends and listens to her mother do a reading in their living room. She goes out to a punk concert and dances, changing bodies with those around her, and ends up strapped to a hospital bed. Back in the art gallery, an adult Sid meets David, dressed as a security guard. She doesn't recognize him, but when he explains to her why she's there, she tells him he needs to watch it again. So we're in Sid's brain. We're in Sid's brain. And we're going to talk about... There's about four or five loops of Sid's life in this episode. And so we'll do a little bit of comparing them just kind of as we go. So we yeah. assume that you've watched all of the episodes. You've yeah. watched all of the episode and we're just going to kind of compare the li- little loops here. So my first question is with the first thing, which is what? why a snowstorm? Why an igloo? I don't know. She's in the womb. Yeah. In an igloo. Her mother is cold. Yeah, that was my thought. Or rather, her mother is not comforting. Being inside the womb is not comforting the way it should be. Right. So she's, from conception, practically, she doesn't want to be touched. Yeah. So even in her mother's womb, she's cold and doesn't like it. Yeah. That, like, the standard imagery Standard womb imagery, standard birth imagery, like her crawling through the tunnel to the igloo 
in some ways is very standard birth imagery crawling through a tunnel, but the standard birth imagery is, you know, red, warm, wet. Mm-hmm. And this is blue, cold, dry. Yeah. And red, warm, wet was in the first episode of Legion was the, all these tunnels. And there was like a tunnel like this in the wall of David's room. Yeah. And that, this is very reminiscent of that. But that was way more birth-like than this. Yeah. Even though this is representing her birth. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I said to say, I, my thought is the same as yours, that it's both that she's uncomfortable and that her mother's cold. So the first time watching this this loop, did you notice, David? I sure didn't. Me neither. It wasn't until the second time watching him, suddenly, I suddenly went, oh, there's the security guard in the background. Oh, David's actually in the club. He's in the living room. The living room when her mother's giving the speech. David's just there. And when on the second and third time watching, it's like, how did I miss it? He's not hidden. No. He's not subtle. He's just standing there, but they don't draw attention to him. No, he's very much just, your focus is elsewhere. Like in, in the, the club, I don't feel bad for not noticing him because he's hard to notice in yes, the club. absolutely. But in the living room, he's just there. Yeah, exactly. And the first time I watched this, I thought that, oh, David isn't there until he appears next to her and talks to her. But no. But no, he's observing the entire time. And the like, when he appears at the end, he's wearing that security guard uniform. And if you didn't catch him... Uh, if you watch this episode again, the very first time they're in the museum, we see the security guard in the background. And once you know to look for David in a security guard uniform, you can recognize it, that that's him. Mm-hmm. That one's also, I feel like, a little hard to spot if you didn't already know it. But him in the living room among the guests, I kicked myself for like, he's just literally standing there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, I have a question about the uh, birth scene. Mm-hmm. Uh which is why are all the, I don't know, birth attendants, doctors, nurses, doctors, nurses, etc. Why are they wearing yellow scrubs? It does look wrong. Right? I yeah. mean, like, why are they wearing yellow in general? But then also they're wearing like full body over their face with a mask. It looks like a hazmat suit. I think... Standard scrubs, that's not unlike scrubs you'd see in a hospital. They'd definitely be wearing a mask in a hospital. And like a hood over their... Mm, they I'd... would for surgery. It's surprising that they are for a birth. But yeah, I don't think that's been... that unusual. What I think is unusual is, is scrubs are green. Scrubs are green or like... I mean, I've been present at two births. They No one was dressed like that. The whole full body scrubs like a hazmat suit. But they might be. I guess. Just because they weren't at those arborists doesn't mean they would be. I, but, it, but it does speak to not being touched. Yeah. It's very much, uh, you know, for, at first it's an unusual color to have them all in these bright yellow. But then, it, but it, and it looks like a hazmat suit, like she can't be touched. Yeah. Because she can't be. And then we have... do. And then all the different uh, images as we go through, like, I feel like we could stop on any of them and think about it. Mm -hmm. What's the deal with the fishbowl? Yeah. She has a pet that she can't touch. Yeah. A yeah, fish. A fish is perfect for Sid. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a way, there's a, I think that's the first thing. 
there's also a sense of like a fishbowl is uh, like a fish in a fishbowl is a life being observed. So Sid mm-hmm. in this episode is in a fishbowl. And we even have like the shot is a fish eye lens right afterwards. Mm. So it's like, uh, yeah. you know, blacked out around the corners. It's round instead of square. Hmm. I didn't notice that. And then we go to the gallery. The gallery that they go to, the paintings are all portraits by Egon Schill. And the real gallery that has all these paintings is the Leonard Gallery, which is in Vienna. So they're not in Vienna. No. It seems like they're in, like, New York. Or or something. Or a big city. So, like, I wonder if that, like, is that something that we are not meant to bother looking up? Yeah, I'm sure. But what it does mean is that Egon Schill is very deliberately chosen, mm-hmm. right? Because Absolutely. if you're going to choose all those paintings and they belong in a gallery that is in Vienna and you are clearly not in Vienna, then it's not just that you went to a gallery and found a room with art that you liked. It's like very deliberately chosen. Mm-hmm. So why the all the paintings are by Egon Schill. He is a uh, Austrian painter, uh, Early in expressionism, uh, a um, protege of Klimt uh, painted a lot of self-portraits. And what we see here are mostly self-portraits. Hmm. Which is interesting because those self-portraits just happen to kind of look like the Shadow King. I know, especially the mustachey one, mm-hmm. which I think they're all the titles are all boring. It's like self-portrait looking down, self-portrait yeah. with striped shirt. Like uh but the mustachey one does look like Farouk, I think. And I wonder if when they were casting, if they looked for someone who looked like this painting. I don't know. I also think the my thoughts about these paintings are they're self-portraits that are different from each other. So we have these self-portraits that don't aren't that are in a similar style but are showing a different side of this person who's making portraits of themselves Mm -hmm. this whole episode is Sid's self-portrait yes absolutely and David keeps trying to interpret the painting keeps trying to interpret the portrait and he sees different parts of her and so do we in this episode just like we see different parts of Egon Schill in his various self-portraits and then also he's very uh Like, it's early expressionism. It is not particularly representational realism, his painting. Yeah. Right? Extreme lines and unrealistic colors. And it's, uh, there's something to that, too, of, like, there's a lot of interpretation called for in Mm -hmm. these paintings. Yeah. Just as there's a lot of interpretation called for. And the interpretation, just as there's a lot of interpretation called for in this episode, both by us and by David. This episode is Sid telling David to interpret what he is seeing. Yeah. And the way to interpret it is not uh, straightforward or obvious, but it's like emotional and uh, by association and kind of the reading that David does in this loop where he talks about the painting that we don't see, where he has no hands and feet and is covering his mouth so he can't communicate and touch anything. Is like, that's pretty good, David. Good interpretation of a painting. Do that, but better. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely my favorite part of this loop 
and we see it again later, is her mom has all these people over, and so they put the jackets on her bed, and she tries on all the different jackets and all the different hats and, like, acts like different people. Yeah. And this is so telling of Sid can put on an entirely different person for real. Mm-hmm. And so she kind of likes it at this point. And she... And it just is a beautiful scene of her trying on things. And even later on, even when she's not doing this, she tr- she wears her clothes like a different person. When mm. she goes to the gallery, she's wearing a beret and mm. a French kind of outfit and try- is trying to look artisty. And then she goes to this punk club and is dressed very, you know, specifically for this punk club. And she's dressed like a very, like a little girl. When she's going to, when she's home with her mom at this party, she's in very young looking clothes. So, like, she puts on clothes to to be her personality and later on she'll put on people. She's dressing up. Mm-hmm. It's a new way of understanding what it is that Sid does with her powers. Mm-hmm. I really like how much she does seem to be enjoying it in this scene at the party. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's one of my favorite parts of the episode, this scene of young Sid dressing up in front of the mirror and acting out all the different people. Yeah. I also really like uh, going from the museum scene where she sees the couple kissing to then herself kissing herself in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And it's the kissing herself in the mirror, like the dressing up in other people's clothes, like lots of stuff, especially about this first loop. These moments on one hand seem very much like just regular childish slash adolescent behavior, like kissing yourself in the mirror to practice kissing uh, and trying on clothes like it's the on the childish end of adolescence. But on the other hand, they both have a whole bunch of extra significance in the specific case of Sid. Yes, absolutely. Also really noticed when Sid's mother is talking in the party Mm -hmm. she's talking about being a survivor and she talks about uh modern psychology would have us believe that we're survivors are like sisyphus with his rock that stuck out to me first because um it's just an interesting illusion it's sisyphus is the greek myth of sisyphus who's punished for i forget even what crimes by having to push a rock up a hill every day and it rolls down every night and so he always has to keep pushing it up um but it's especially interesting because in the second season of Fargo, also created by Noah Hawley, there's a lot of references to Sisyphus. And mm-hmm. particularly Camus wrote a philosophical treatise about Sisyphus where he says that we have to imagine Sisyphus being happy, that existentialism is the idea that even though everything is futile, we have to find happiness in it anyway. Hmm. And that's big in Fargo season two. And here we are with Sisyphus again. And we kind of end this episode with a similar kind of thesis statement of even though it hurts and is hard and is everything is bad, we survive it and we keep going anyway. And that's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So Sisyphus really stood out to me. And I, yeah, obviously it is a myth and existentialist philosophy are things that Noah Hawley is very attracted to. Mm-hmm. It's coming up here again. And I like that we hear her mother's 
kind of talk a few times. And so it's really drilled into our head what's that it's important. Yeah. But, I mean, it's drilled into our head that it's important, but I think it's done lightly enough that there's a few things we see several times. So it's not, yes. uh, I think, overly emphasized to the point that we're, you know, hitting us over the head with it. Although yes, I did definitely. get, I got to the conclusion that it's about surviving just before David did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can attest to that. I think you said that out loud, even when we watched it. <laughs> um, I like, I also want to draw attention to when Sid and her mother, when Sid is strapped down in the hospital bed, mm-hmm. which this is the only loop we see that in. Oh, which and I thought was interesting. Before you go on, just want to say, I love that abrupt transition from dancing in the club to strapped in the hospital bed because mm-hmm, you know exactly what's happened yeah. but yeah okay. so she's wearing a very bright red and her mother is wearing a very green color and so you see this stark contrast between them red is always in this show very significant in it's a symbol of danger. It's a symbol of the devil with the yellow eyes. It's a sim. It's just, and Sid is often in red and black in these colors. And she continues to be that in this loop, um, in this backstory, the mother in this bright green, she's not often in green, but green is a sign of the regular world in mm-hmm. Legion. The people, the couple who's making out in the gallery, who are kissing in the gallery, are, she's in green as well. Mm-hmm. It's this, it's the color of normalcy. Amy always yeah. wore green in season one. Yeah. And so it's our clue that her mother is in the normal world and Sid is not. And that makes me think about in chapter 10 when the when Oliver says, imagine a boy who's taught that red is green and green is red. Mm-hmm. So we have the extra meaning added on to that, that imagine being taught that normal is not normal. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That the normal world is the uh, special world or whatever. Mm-hmm. Normal super loaded, but I think it's, it's yeah. appropriate to use a super loaded term here. Yeah. And then we have the gallery again. I like on this first uh, watch through how much David doesn't know anything. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, uh, at the end of this, when he says, like, you must, the, the gallery must be your core desire because you keep coming back to it. And she says, you think ghosts like living in a haunted house. That's an interesting allusion. That's an interesting uh, metaphor to make because in season one, the Shadow King is explicitly referred to as a ghost haunting David like a haunted house. Mm -hmm. And then in last episode, in chapter 11, we had Farouk saying he didn't, he was trapped in David's body and didn't want to be there he chose to be there rather than being dead yeah but he didn't want to be there and then we have here and is it so bad to feel sorrow for your enemy and then here we have not connecting explicitly to the shadow king but we have the same idea of you called him a ghost haunting you 
Do you think ghosts like living in a haunted house? I was confused about this line and how what it has to do with her. Is she a ghost? Is she feeling... She, I, she is haunting these memories. Hmm. David thinks that because she keeps coming back to the gallery, that means she likes it. Hmm. She's saying, I'm haunting these memories like a ghost haunting a haunted house. I'm not here because I like it. Mm -hmm. I'm here because I'm stuck in this loop, even if it is my own doing. You think just because I'm here, it means I like it? You don't know anything. Okay, I understand then. That was confusing to me, but now I get it. And when we have, when she ends that by saying, watch it again. First of all, I love how disorienting that is, both to David and to us, that she one second ago was, we now know, pretending not to know who David was. Uh, and she says, watch it again. This is our first clue, and it's a strong one, that Sid is actually the one in charge. This is not the monk's maze. She's not trapped. She is trapping David. Yeah. She's the one in control of this whole episode. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Which is, just to digress for a second, interesting to think about that, once again, Sid's mind is different. Yeah. Sid in the season, in season one, Sid could communicate with the Shadow King in her own mind. And here we have Sid not being in the maze like everyone else was. She's in a totally different thing. Yeah. Her mind is just not the same. And is that because of her relationship with David or is that something different about Sid? And was she in the maze ever? Like. Yeah. Before he got there and before the monk died. I don't know. I don't know. So moving on into loop number two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back in the igloo, we go through the loop of Sid's life again, this time with David as a visible observer. This time we see her being teased by mean girls, reading on the couch again, and kissing a demanding boy who, who she uses to beat up the mean girls. She returns to the gallery, where David tells her she's in the maze and thinks it's the kissing couple and she desires that. But Sid says to watch it again. I didn't forgot to mention the first time around. Uh, Sid is sitting on that couch reading a book. Mm-hmm. She's sitting on the couch reading a book. And her mother, in the very first time we see it, is friendly and kind of smiles at her. And they share a moment. The second time we see it, her mother ignores her. And yeah. so we don't know what's real. This is an unreliable story. It's so interesting, though, that moment. Because I've watched this episode three times, as we usually do before recording. And I watched closely the, that moment when it came back for, like, what is the difference? I mean, it must just be the performer, her mother, how mm-hmm. she acts. But it... So so much about the tone of that interaction the first time seems like this lovely, warm little moment where they're both, you know, contentedly reading in the same room, sharing this space and bonding by giving each other a little look. And it seems so, like, it, it seems like such a nice moment. And mm-hmm. I remember watching it the first time and being like, thinking about how I love reading in a room with my kids. Yeah. Uh, and then the second time, 
it's so close to exactly the same, but the tone is completely different, and now she's, like, trying to get her mother's attention, and her mother just ignores her. Yeah. And it's so subtle, the difference, that makes it feel so different. And this time we hear her reading aloud in her head as well. Yeah. Until we get a little bit of this book. This book, by the way, uh, that she's reading and that David refers to later is The Ring of Brightest Angels Around Heaven, a novella, and, and stories by Rick Moody. So The Ring of Brightest Angels, David will refer to later. But it is a real book by Rick Moody. Uh, it was published in 1994. So, so, <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that's a changing of, you know, it, it looks like this thing is taking place in the 70s or 80s, but she's reading a book from 94, so who knows what's real. It's contemporary. It's all contemporary. It's happening right now, Jen. Uh-huh. Um, one of the, I read a little bit about the book. It's a collection of stories that are mostly about loneliness and he really plays with the form, including having a, like a two-page story that's all one sentence. And so I can see where likely Noah Hawley knows and is a fan of this book because uh, playing with the form is something Noah Hawley no does well. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reviews of it said, these are not necessarily just straight narratives, but play around with the ideas of meaningful coincidences and circles of happenings. And that sounds a lot like our show. It sure does. Meaningful coincidences. And even the part that she reads here is the nature, we didn't understand the nature of the coincidences that bound us together, mm -hmm. which is, I feel like a lot of this show is them not understanding what's binding them together and these coincidences too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what you said about loneliness, I mean, not to belabor the obvious, but Sid's reading a book about loneliness. Yeah, exactly. Because she's lonely. Because she's lonely. Um, the mean girls singing, like, chanting at her mm -hmm. say, uh, she lives with her mom because her dad's in hell. Yeah. And, like, up to, up until the moment when they said that, it never really crossed my mind to wonder about Sid's dad because, like, this, her mother, uh, really seems like someone who, you know, is raising her daughter on her own because she wants to. And, like, yeah. whether her dad is a one-night stand or a, a sperm donor or what have you. But then, the, like, because her dad's in hell makes me suddenly curious. Like, is there more to the story? Is there some? Where is her dad? Hmm. I just assumed this was kids being mean. Yeah. The I mean, kids, it is. Kids will find any excuse to make fun of other kids, so... But Noah Hawley writing but... the show could have had them tease her about anything. Yes, that is true. They tease her about her not her dad not just not being around, but her dad's in hell. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder: is her dad dead? Is her dad in jail? In jail? Is her dad like a villain? What is the deal? I am curious in a way I have not been ever before by that line. Mm -hmm. Or because uh, her mom, because her mom's not with her dad, her dad is a abandoner, therefore he's in hell. Yeah, maybe. We Either have... Way, kids are cruel. 
Yeah, totally. We Do we assume that those three mean girls are the same three mean girls that are older later? I definitely think that this these three girls are the same three girls. We're, I mean, there's three of them. They're yep. wearing similar things. It's coded to obviously be the same three girls. Yep. Just wondering. So as the three mean girls like walk past her and like bump up against her on purpose, and then we see her go out and mark on her skin a tally. Those are, I presume, a tally of marks when someone has touched her. I think so, yeah. It's really striking because they're a tally. They also look like a scar. Yep. Uh, and that's foreshadowing of later in the episode when she's cutting herself. Mm-hmm. So we have her marking on her skin. And like, it's again, it shows this degree of of internal conflict because she doesn't want to be touched. She doesn't want them to touch her, but she's keeping a mark on her skin of time she's been touched. And the sense I get from that is because she is also starved for physical touch. Mm -hmm. So it's not like here are all the times something bad has happened to me. It's like I've been touched this many times. I think at the same time as it looks like a scar Mm -hmm. and it is damage to her. Mm -hmm. It's also something that she is craving. It also kind of looks like X's. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a line with dashes through it, but it looks a little like X's. There is an X on her, this leather jacket she has, Mm -hmm. has an X on it. Uh, It has like an atom, like a, Molecular atom. Yep. It also, on the back, is written, no use for anything. Hmm. So. Well, the X and the atom both seem clearly X-Men references. But what does no use for anything mean? I'm not sure. It's very, you know, punk. Yeah. What are you rebelling against? What do you got kind of thing? Teen angst. Teen angst. Yeah. It's once again, like this teen angst that uh, is on one hand very universal and on the other hand very specific. Mm-hmm. And very put on as well. Yeah. She puts on this jacket to be a certain person. Yeah. So this boy who's all I wanted was a kiss is also in, he's in green and yellow. So he's in green to mm-hmm. be like the normal world. The re- the rest of the world and what do you think of this scene with this boy <sighs> does he deserve it is kind of what i come to i mean this is the first of two male figures men and boys who are sexually desire her and she sexually desires that she punishes through her powers. Yep. Right? This is like a trial run on the really harrowing scene later uh, with her mother's boyfriend. Um, I mean, I don't... In terms of deserve, no. I don't think anyone deserves... uh, I don't think anyone in that scene deserves it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
is there some sense of justice or of appropriate retribution for like he deserves something bad to happen to him yeah and so do they am i do i see where she's coming from why she wants to uh lash out at all four of them yes it's I interesting like, sorry i like what this show is saying in general Mm -hmm. about assault mm -hmm. and that it's not shying away from this guy isn't just boys will be boys this guy no. isn't just you know standard teenage boy he wants a kiss just run away from him it's your fault if you give him the kiss it punishes him because mm -hmm. he's assaulting her mm -hmm. by doing this and i appreciate that in 2018 mm -hmm. that he doesn't get away with this at all no. And like, on one hand, I don't think he deserves uh, to be taken away for beating up the three girls he didn't beat up. But on the other hand, he does deserve to be taken away for assaulting someone because he did. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right? So the question of desert, I think, is complicated. He deserves to be punished somehow. The narrative, it doesn't, the narrative should punish him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh do the three girls deserve to be to have the snot beat out of them? Um, no, but they're they're her tormentors. Yeah, and you can kind of see why she would do this, but she takes it too far. Yeah, and that's what but I think for both. Right for them, for the girl, the three girls, and for him, she takes it too far. Mm-hmm. And she knows she has. Yeah. And it's very understandable that she would. Mm-hmm. Right? She gives this little smile the first time through after she sees them, like, on the ground beat up. Yep. That's very, like, very disconcerting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh because you say she says she knows she's gone too far, but the first loop through, it doesn't seem like she does. Yeah, you're right. And maybe that's why at the end of this scene, the end of this loop, David thinks that what she wants is the couple. What he, she wants is to kiss and be close to someone, specifically him. Mm -hmm. And in a scene where we just saw someone trying to do that you kind of know already that david is just so wrong yeah because if what she really wanted was to be close to someone well why wouldn't she have just kept making out with the guy mm -hmm. exactly despite switching bodies mm -hmm. we really see uh, clearly that he's wrong this time yeah when he, and duh, of course he's wrong this time. Yeah. This is his stupidest that he is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that she, like, he's much smarter to think that she's in the museum where she can see the world but not touch it. That's also wrong, but that's a smarter guess than this one. Yeah, absolutely. So back in the igloo again. This time, David sits in it after Sid has gone. We see her life again with flashes of self-harm, watching the mean girls on the ground and the making out couple, 
and then just uh, wrong without David explaining. <laughs> David, again, David paces in the igloo and watches her life. This time he chases off the mean girls and talks to young Sid. She tells him to figure things out, and he realizes that this is not the maze. This time is so quick through. Mm-hmm. We're getting like quick flashes of moments in her life. And the emphasis is much more on David than on Sid this time. Yeah. His experience watching her. But also his, this is where it starts to get darker. Like we see her doing self-harm. Mm-hmm. We see just a little, we see a little bit more of the darkness in Sid's life. And there's a few things that are different this time that stuck out to me like... The first two loops, Sid the baby cries when her mom touches her and then immediately stops when her mom doesn't. Mm-hmm. And in this loop, she keeps crying. Hmm. She's crying even when her mom's not touching her. Like yeah. it's a little thing, but the baby's already is always crying in this loop. And in this loop, she doesn't smile after she's hurt the girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, she still does it, but we don't get that satisfied smile like we did last time. And it, and we have David standing in the place where, like, there's a three-part uh, displacement. First, it's the red-headed boy standing at the feet of the girls he's hit. Mm-hmm. And then it's Sid. And then it's David. And Sid has backed up. Yeah. So David is getting much more personal with these moments. Exactly. He's really in there, not just as an observer anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the same as, like, it's one loop later, but it's this same kind of sequence where he interferes directly and chases the tormentors off. That mm-hmm. he's engaged in a way that he hasn't been the first two times. Even the first time, like the second time at the birth scene, he says... You you don't want to touch her. She doesn't like being touched uh, and kind of trails off. Mm-hmm. This time he's like stepping in and get out of here. Yeah, exactly. He's changing the narrative by being in it. Yeah. And he's like seeing things, I think, not to belabor the point, but like when he's standing where she was at the, with the girls on the ground, he's seeing things more from her perspective than he did before. Mm-hmm. Still not enough. No. And he keeps being wrong. Like, what does it mean? <laughs> what do we think of this moment? He's increasingly frustrated through this section. Yeah. Uh, what do we think of this moment where he's, she says wrong before he even has said anything? Yeah. Like, partly it's just funny. Yeah. But it's also like. Well, we do know they have been each, in each other's heads. And so it could be she hears what he's thinking even before he says it. Mm-hmm. Or she gets, but I, I, I'm thinking she, she, he just has a look on his face and she goes, no, that's not it. Because <laughs> if you knew you, this is how you'd look, you know? Yeah. And then, I mean, we talked about the, I don't know, as far as the self-harm and the cutting is concerned, I don't know that I have much to say about it other than it's uh, really upsetting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's foreshadowed in the markings on her skin that she does, as I said. Mm-hmm. It's one of these, like, not surprising, but really uh, disturbing and and 
really makes me feel sad for for Sid. Yeah, and it's just another way in which she's cracked and broken. Yeah. Literally cracked. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this episode, I think, more than any other episode of this show so far. And there have been moments that I have, but I feel emotionally invested in Sid more than I ever have mm-hmm. th- throughout this episode. Yeah. I really like that, it for that. I think it does an amazing job of getting me very emotionally invested in her. And mm-hmm. it's when she's cutting herself, I just feel like my heart goes out to her. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of that is due to how amazing this little actress is. Yeah. Her name is uh, Pearl Amanda Dickinson, who plays young Sid. And I mean, she carries the weight of this episode on her shoulders and she does a fantastic job. She really does. Like, kudos to the director, kudos to her. It's really, really well done. Because, yeah, the there's, I think, four ages of Sid. Mm-hmm. But Pearl Amanda Dickinson, the, like, 15-year-old Sid... Is most of the episode mm-hmm. uh, more of she's Sid more often than Rachel Keller is in this episode? Yeah, and she's doing such a good job, such a good job. But we have the younger version of Sid telling David off this time. Mm-hmm. I like that moment too. I I didn't expect David to step in and chase the girls off. Like it's these one of these moments where like. Oh, yeah, he can do th- something. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't change anything, but it it still is meaningful. But he says, like, are they bothering you? And she's like, you're cheating. You can't just ask me. Which is, if you had any doubt that Sid is only pretending not to know what she knows. Mm-hmm. We have that, like, she's acting through this whole thing for David's yeah. benefit. Yeah. Even when she's a little girl, she knows who he is and what she's doing and what this whole thing is. Yeah, absolutely. That's another real moment of like, what is even going on here? Mm-hmm. That's what David says, or his face says, and I feel it too, as the like, I kind of didn't think that she was in the maze since the first time when she was watching it again, that she yeah. has some control, but like, this isn't one more level of she's even more in control of this than I thought she was. Yeah, absolutely. So we go from here. Suddenly we're back in division three. Female Carrie awakes in the hallway and pulls male Carrie from her body. Clark passes by and tells them the monk is dead on the sidewalk and everyone is awake. They go to find Sid and David on the roof who their brainwaves show that they're awake, but they're still lying there with their eyes closed. In Sid's head, David fights through a storm to be in the igloo again. In the gallery, he tells Sid he will still love her even if she shows him all the messed up things she did. But he's wrong. Again, David is frustrated and just wants to go home. So I'm glad I was surprised when we went back to Division 3. Uh-huh. I thought this whole episode was just going to be the loops in Sid's head. Me too. But I'm glad we did because we got a sent- we got the outside confirmation that... Everyone else is awake except them. Yeah. And we kind of, I mean, like, it's nice to see everyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even if it's only for 
half a second. Like, it's nice to see the rest of our cast. I was really surprised when we left Sid's head. Very surprised. Why is everyone awake because the monk's dead? Like, Clark thinks that that means the monk was causing it. Last episode, I said just because he's typhoid Mary doesn't mean he's the one causing it. He was just spreading it. But this seems to say I was wrong. Right? Yeah, I think so. Like, everyone wakes up when he's dead. Does that mean that it actually is? He was the one doing it? He was the one who was causing the chattery? And even, like, actively causing it? Actively keeping them there? Well, I'm wondering if, like, is it the Division 3 people who are all awake? Or is it everyone who was in the chattery is also awake? I read that as everyone in the chattery. I guess that makes sense. 300 people who suddenly need to use the bathroom. Yeah. Everyone's awake. Everyone's awake. Yeah, it is like, is it, it must have been. Somehow the monk was linked to this psychic phenomena. Yeah. Not just spreading it, but causing it. But causing it. But that it, does that mean he was doing it consciously? I don't know. I still think no. Mm-hmm. And he could have been doing it passively, but... Uh, but still being the cause. Mm-hmm. But it still leads me to like, he's very contagious, even if he was the cause. Like, why? That That's still not an answer. Mm-hmm. But what does that all mean? I don't know. Yeah. I don't feel like we're closer to actually understanding. Maybe a little bit. Um, I love, love Carrie pulling Carrie out of her. Yeah. Yeah, it was very visceral. It was. It was like another birth image. Yes, very true. I didn't even think of that. It is a very birth image. Like It's like every time that they join or separate, we represent it differently. Mm-hmm. I really like it. I like this one a lot. And the practical effects that like, practically, that was just like a camera angle and some sound effects, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it looked so good. Mm-hmm. I liked seeing what Sid and David look like when they're doing this kind of things, which is just like standing near each other. He's got his hand near her head. And they're just mm-hmm. standing there. And I wonder, like, when they have their moments where they escape to, like, the astral plane or whatever, is that what they look like to the outside world? Yeah. I guess it must be. Yeah. But they have never seen that before. They're confused by that. So, obviously, they've been doing that, I guess, in private. And then we have, in Sid's mind, David saying that he, like, has figured it all out. He knows everything. And he gives this great impassioned speech. Uh <laughs> and yeah. so it's just eh. <laughs> I like that uh, she's not even moved by the speech no like it's this moment of him bearing his soul to her of like he loves her no matter what he always will it's all about him and how she wants him to love her and she's like eh. yep. I'm not moved by your speech not only are you not right I'm not uh, try again mm-hmm. try this time Although I do like, I think he is doing, I said that his uh, guess that she wanted to be like the kissing couple was a bad guess. But in general, it feels like he's getting better. Yes. Uh, he is trying and I like that he's making progress. And this is a better guess, a much better guess than the last one, mm-hmm. even though it's wrong. Yeah. I like that he keeps working on it and keeps getting better. And he says here, 
soon after this, he says he'll never give up. Mm-hmm. Which is a indication that he feels like giving up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? You don't say, I'll never give up on something that you is doing great. Mm. Yeah. That's a good point. When I'm, uh, you know, kid asks for butter on her bread and I start buttering it, I don't say, I'll never give up on buttering this bread right now. <laughs> <laughs> Weird example, but okay. <laughs> so in what I'm calling loop number six, we see David with flashes of Sid's life and him in the foreground. We see the reading again and Sid trying on others, trying on others' clothes and the boy who tries to kiss her. Then punk Sid drinks leftover wine and then is winked at by her mother's boyfriend before leaving for the club. In the night, Sid wakes and goes to the living room to find her mother asleep and the boyfriend in the shower. She trades places with her mother and has sex in the shower, but the bodies switch back and her mother awakes and discovers them. She screams and has him arrested. David finally gets it. They're back in the igloo again, and David realizes it's being about being strong at the broken places. Sid says they need to be fighters, not lovers. David finally gets it. And Sid takes them to an all-white place, and then they awake back in Division 3. Things are happening there, and we pan down the hallway to see Lenny being brought in by the soldiers. Cut to title card and credits. (laughs) Um, This was hard to watch. I gotta say, the whole scene, we knew what it was because we'd heard her... In season one, Sid tells this story of the first time she had sex, and it was harrowing just to hear it, and then now we have to see it. Yeah. And I'm sure for David, it was harrowing to have to hear it when he first heard it, and now he has to see it. And it's disturbing. It really is. And you said that this was to punish him because he winked at her? I think that... uh... I said that he is punished. I don't know that Sid is actively wanting to punish him. Hmm. But I think that just like the boy, the redheaded boy, he gets taken away by police for something he's not responsible for Hmm. uh, because of his desire for Sid and her desire for him. Hmm. Okay. I don't think... I think that Sid is uh, confused and conflicted throughout this whole scene. Yeah. And very... Oh, broken? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that she set out to do this so that he would get arrested for winking at her. I'm not saying that at all. Okay. Because, yeah, I don't definitely don't think she was. But I think the winking is an indication that he... Uh, is lecherous. Is lecherous, or that he does have some, uh, whether he would never act on it more than just winking at her, he does have some sexual desire for her, hmm. That she, and she for him, mm-hmm. and the show really punishes him for that. Yeah. 
I felt like she got out of bed. Yep. And she tried to self-harm again. She had the scissors. And then instead of doing that, she kind of took the nuclear option. Yeah. Like she just went nuts and went for a whole new kind of pain experience. Yeah. The moment when she's like in her mother's body in the shower and she just like touches his shoulder mm-hmm. and that the actress who's her mother, by the way, is also does really well in this mm-hmm. episode. She's fantastic. She's from American horror story. Okay. I don't know. I haven't seen that show, so mm-hmm. I don't know her from that, but yeah. I know that people were excited that she was cast in this show. Mm. Um, she's doing really good. And like, she plays that scene in the shower. So vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah. It's harrowing is the word. Oh. The, the record player. Yeah. As she goes into the, into the living room. The record player is uh, doing the skipping thing. Which means it's not 1994. Um, <laughs> Her mom would totally be the kind of person to have vintage stuff. Good call. Um, anyway, it's doing the the skipping thing at the very end of the record. And and it kind of merges in with a heartbeat sound. Hmm. Kind of seamlessly, almost so you wouldn't even notice. It's like this beat, 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 heartbeat sound and we feel like i mean there's heartbeat sounds throughout this episode and you really feel like you're inside sid's head and her whole body where you're hearing these beats and it's like being in the womb yeah the entire we time. get those heartbeat sounds more most noticeably or at least i noticed the most in those birth scenes mm-hmm. but then we're going down Within their house, their apartment has this long, narrow hallway. And so we get this heartbeat sound and we get these long camera shots a couple of times down this hallway to the bathroom. And so it's yet another like birthing uh, sex metaphor mm-hmm. there again. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the these long shots, by the way? are a characteristic of this whole episode. Mm-hmm. These True. like long continuous shots that take us from one space to another, or that just like focus and zo- there's these shots in the museum that are single shots of their Sid and David's conversation that loop around them again and again. Mm-hmm. Or in this scene, there's a continuous shot from uh, the mother having sex in the Sid and the mother's body having sex in the shower. But the actress uh, and a single slow panning shot that goes down the hallway and comes around and we see her lying on the couch mm-hmm. and that's a single unbroken shot. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot in this episode, like these slow, long shots and they're beautiful in terms of construction. Mm-hmm. They're also emotionally, they're about like, this is not a, uh, this is an episode that you want to slowly pay attention to. This is an experience, David, that you want to slowly pay attention to. Yeah. Uh, we have the one time when um, when the music is playing uh, the White Room, we have lots of quick cuts of flashes of Sid's life. But yep. for most of the episode, we have these slow, long shot moments. Yeah, Absolutely. 
And then at the end of this, uh, when Sid is, like, when the boyfriend is being taken away by the police and David is sitting there watching and Sid is all, like, curled up and she, like, looks right at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when he finally gets it. I feel like it's one thing he already knew this story. It's one yep. thing to know this story. It's another thing to see this story play out. Yeah. I th- yeah. I thought as we were going through Sid's life, and I said this to you even as we were watching it the very first time, when this scene first started, I was like, oh, I was afraid this was going to happen because there's... This is the story we know from her childhood. Three things we already knew about Sid's childhood. One is the music box that we didn't see in this episode at all. Mm-hmm. One is that her mother gave these parties that we saw like very early in the episode. And the other is this. This is the third thing we already knew about Sid's childhood. Yep. So yes, of course, we come back to it. Yeah. <sighs> so what do we make of this conversation in the igloo? That love makes you soft like you've been in the bath. That there have to be fighters, not lovers. Well, first, uh, the quote that Sid's mother says in her speech, and then David quotes again, Mm -hmm. uh, the world breaks everyone, and afterwards, some are strong at the broken places. That is a quote from Hemingway, from A Farewell to Arms. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it's significant for this episode because the episode seems to be using it in the way that most people do but in context that quote doesn't really mean what it seems to mean hmm. that is it's not in context about uh how it's great to be broken it uh goes if people bring so much courage to the world the world has to kill them to break them so of course it kills them The world breaks everyone, and afterwards, many are strong at the broken places, but those that will not break, it kills. Hmm. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. And I feel like I'm actually, I started this by saying the show is kind of using the, misusing the quote the way people often do, but reading the whole quote in context actually makes a lot of sense to how Sid is understanding this. That the world kills the very good, the very gentle, the very brave. Uh, we have to be strong and not be broken. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or we have to be strong and not be afraid to be broken. Yeah. Because the alternative to being broken is being killed. Right? Yeah. I like, I really like uh, what Sid says about love won't save us. Love is the thing we have to save. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Yeah, I agree. I was kind of disappointed the first watching of this because I felt like she was saying she doesn't love him. Mm-hmm. But I think I understand better now that it's about him and her fighting for love, not fighting because of love. Yeah, like the point, I think, is not that they shouldn't love each other or that love isn't important or that love isn't uh, 
worth fighting for and protecting, but that love won't save us. The fact that we're in love is not what's going to make us survive and happy and, I mean, happy maybe. The fact that we're in love is not what's going to make us survive. Yeah, absolutely. So then they wake up. So then they wake up. Well, first she takes them into the all-white place, which I liked because it was like she was controlling the white room. Yeah. Which I appreciated. And they wake up, and then there's Lenny. Why is Lenny back? They wake up in the real world, but is it the real world? Because how the heck is Lenny there? How is she, like, her body was stuck in a wall. How much can Farouk manipulate physical world to make her actually physically be there? Well, if Farouk can turn a person into a pig, he can turn one body into another body that looks like Lenny's body. I guess so. Right? Yeah. No? Is it a coincidence that Lenny is back when the monk is dead? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. It really seemed Lenny and Farouk's conversation about Lenny getting her body back really seemed to end on, no, that's never going to happen. Yeah, exactly. So what has happened with Farouk in all this time? Even like in chapter 11, she was desperately trying to escape. Did she figure out how to escape? Is this Farouk gave her a body or is this she escaped? I don't know. I don't know. I kind of was assuming that they, in the meantime, they found some agreement and Farouk gave her her body back. But maybe she escaped. I don't think that Lenny has the power to escape from Farouk. Yeah. But maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. There's lots to think about, I guess. I mean, we'll find out next episode because there's we could speculate all night, but I don't think that... And the credits, the the title card comes this late in the episode. Yeah. Like the very right last the very second. Yeah. That I, was very clever. I, I like laughed out loud when it was like FX presents. <laughs> yeah. It's like this whole episode hasn't really been Legion because we haven't been in Division 3 and there's been yeah. all those things. We've just, it's just been like this five minute interlude that we were experiencing over the course of an entire episode. Yeah. I think you're putting your finger on it. Like the reason the credits are, the title card is so late is that is a mix of this is such an atypical episode, but also like not a lot of time has passed. Not a lot of show has passed. Mm-hmm. This was just a little interlude that we experienced for a long time. Just like David and Sid did. They haven't missed much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Love it. Oh, this was a really, really good episode. It was. I think. I feel like there's a thousand more things to dissect, including I didn't even mention the floor of the at the museum is these interesting shapes. Which, the, by the way, is not the floor in the Leopold Gallery. The actual museum in Vienna does not have a floor that looks like that. So this is specifically designed for Legion. The floor of Sid's bathroom is all hexagon tiles. So we see yes. hexagons again, even in within Sid's head. I saw that. They're hexagons. It's just, there's a lot. So, let me just take us through the songs before we end, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where I feel like they have been uh, saving up the music this yeah, season. absolutely. They've been 
songs, but uh, man, there was so much music in this episode and it was all so good. The first song we heard during the first loop and scenes from Sid's childhood is called 22 by Bonnie Vare. Uh, it, some of the lyrics, I'm not going to read all of them, but go, it might be over soon. Where are you going to look for confirmation? And if it's ever going to happen, so I'm standing at the station, it might be over soon. And the context of the song, it might be over soon, really suggests the it is bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Like suffering and confusion might be over soon. And we hear, we see Sid's life and it might be over soon. And this loop that we're in might be over soon. And Sid's trauma might be over soon, or it might not be. Uh, I feel like it might be over soon is really appropriate for the whole episode, not just for this first loop. Yeah. When Sid goes and dances at the punk club, the song playing is Turtleneck by The National. Um, Some especially relevant lyrics are... uh, Hope my mother mentioned, Dad will dance with me. I'd like to spin a while under the copperwood tree. There's something about her eyes. I think her roots are rotten. This must be the reason she wears her hair up in knots. And Sid, of course, is wearing her hair up in knots at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the her reason... Roots, sorry, what? Her roots are rotten. Interesting. Yeah. The reason she wears her hair up in knots, the reason Sid's wearing her hair up in knots, as you said, is because she's uh, wearing the costume of a punk kid. Mm-hmm. That's the surface reason. But then there's also, like, there's something about her eyes. I think her roots are rotten. This must be the reason she wears her hair up in knots. That's There's something uh, damaged about her. Yeah. That we are getting evidence of at this point already i mean and we really are that's not hard to see at this point of of the story in the third and fourth loop we have uh white room by cream uh but actually not by cream originally by cream but this version is performed by jeff russo and noah holly hmm. uh and Some of the relevant lyrics are in the white room with black curtains near the station, black roof country, no gold pavements, tired, tired starlings, silver horses ran down moonbeams in your dark eyes. Dawnlight smiles on you leaving my contentment. And then here's where I think is especially relevant. I'll wait in this place where the sun never shines. Wait in this place where the shadows run from themselves. And this is right before David says that he'll never give up. Not immediately before, but it's yeah. right before David says he'll never give up. Uh, and we have David and Sid both waiting in this place where the sun never shines. Yeah. Where the shadows run from themselves. And shadows is always going to be super loaded in this show because of the Shadow King. Mm-hmm. Although we really don't have the Shadow King as a presence in this episode. Aside from the painting that looks like him. Aside from the painting that looks like him. I feel like even that painting, I don't disagree that it does look definitely look like him, but I wonder, there's such a minor presence of the Shadow King in this episode, mm-hmm. and this episode is so much about Sid and her deal. Yeah. But anyway, 
we have here in Sid's past is a place where the sun never shines and everything is dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where Sid and David are going to wait through the whole episode. Um, in the fourth and fifth loop, uh, right before we break out of Sid's head and see Carrie and Carrie in the real world. And then right after we come back in the same song plays again is called it is not meant to be by tame Impala. And some relevant lyrics are, I wanted her, I wanted her, but she doesn't like the life I lead. She doesn't like the life I lead. Doesn't like sand stuck on her feet or sitting around smoking weed. I must seem more like a friend in need. Uh, And this is the loop where we see, this is the sections where we really see David, but also other people wanting Sid. Hmm. and then the very last song uh, over the end credits is Burning Down the House, originally by the Talking Heads, but performed this time by Jeff Russo and Noah Hawley again. Hmm. Uh, and immediately after we see that Lenny has returned, the lyrics we get are, watch out, you might get what you're after. Mm-hmm. So Lenny has said, please let me free, let me free, I want my body back. Hey, Lenny's got her body back. Watch out, you might get what you're after. Yep. So I think this is a strong signal to us that Lenny getting her body back is not good for Lenny. No. Or for anyone. Or for anyone. And it gives me the extra evidence to myself that this is Farouk's doing and not Lenny escaping. Mm-hmm. She got what she asked for and it's not going to be good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The burning down the house, too, she, Sid says, David, burn with me. Yeah. So, this is part of the burning. Yeah, and Sid says, like, uh, God loves the sinners best because we burn the brightest. Burn with me. Mm -hmm. And they're burning. A lot of this episode is about Sid. I mean, to the degree that this episode is about Sid demonstrating what she has survived her memories are something she's showing to David, but not something that she's, they're a, they're a haunted house, mm-hmm. she says, right? And she's burning them down. Yeah. She's survived them and she's moved past them and they're something that she, are part of her, but they're armor. They're not uh, something she goes back to nostalgically. Mm-hmm. So symbolically, she's burning down her house. So there is just a ton in this episode to unpack, to talk about. I feel like we've barely even scratched the surface. Yeah. I could watch this episode 10 more times and feel like I could find more every time. So if you want to chat with us, find some more things, what things you noticed in the loops of of Sid's life, give us a shout out uh, on Twitter at ClockworksCast, via email ClockworksCast at gmail.com. Thank you for those people who are emailing us, who are sending us messages on Twitter. They really uh, help keep us going, help uh, make us happy and make our day. If you want to support us in a more concrete way, there's uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash clockworkscast. You can donate as little as a dollar, as much as you want, and you get a little bit of extra bonus things, including our other podcast. I wanted to make sure to mention in the context of the of the podcast that if you're listening to this 
and it's been like six months or a year or like, I don't know, six years since this show aired and you're like watching, binge watching the show and listening to our podcast, still feel free to add us on Twitter or email us or whatever. We, we still want to hear from you, even if we recorded this episode two years ago. As you know from Legion, time is not important. Like, send us a message to the future. Exactly. All right. So thanks for listening. Anything else you want to say, Paul? Just that I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. Goodbye.